keep pushing. Keep pushing, keep pushing. And I need you to be a minister for a moment and find somebody sit, sitting in your general vicinity. Look them dead in the eyes if they owe you $20. And tell them, neighbor, whatever you do, keep pushing. Keep pushing, keep pushing. It's hard to keep pushing in the world that we're living in right now. How is one supposed to find serenity and sanity and strength in the world we live in right now? Hey y'all and welcome back to the show. As you might have noticed, we have a new intro song. Mr. Vincent Antone and his song Still Pushing On are going to be our intro and outro for this next season, if you will, of Start the Ego, Feed the Soul. I first came across this song just randomly on Spotify. I absolutely love the message. I love the speeches that he incorporates into the music. Um, as you all know, I'm a musician myself, so when music speaks to me, it's quite powerful and really appreciative for Vincent letting us license the rights to this song for the next year. And um, I think it you know, couldn't be a better fit for the episodes we have coming out. So a huge shout out to him. Go check out his music. I'm going to throw a link to the song and through all of Vincent's music in the show notes. Check it out. Tune in. Give him a follow on, on Spotify. If you're new here or you're considering working with me, I just want to remind everyone I work with people in one-on-one settings, all virtually, all over Zoom, individuals, couples, athletes. Um, if you're interested in working with me, head over to www.nicobarraza.com to inquire more. You can book a session there. You can look at the pricing. Um, I'm also still accepting pre-sale payment for the Navigating Grief and Loss course that I'm going to be teaching in October. If you want to sign up for that, it's 150 bucks. You're going to have two live sessions with me over two and a half hours. It's going to be a group setting. We're going to break off into small groups, have a lot of prompts and um, small group workshops, and it's going to be a really cool experience. So if you want to join us, I hope you do. For more information on that course, head over to the website, click on courses, and then go to navigating grief and loss. And as always, it means a lot if you guys can leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts and a five-star review on Spotify Podcasts. It literally takes you a couple seconds if you pause the show right now and go get those things done. That'd mean a lot to me. It's a free way you can give back and contribute to the show. Also, I've been getting a lot of DMs about um, the gear for Starve the Ego, Feed the Soul and the different branding and merchandise and where that's available. So if you head over to the to the website that I gave you guys, just www.nicobarraza.com and go to store, um, you can shop. There's a ton of gear um, that I've made, sustainable ink, sustainable clothing. We got some mugs, some tumblers, um, stickers, you know, that kind of stuff. It's all really sweet stuff. Um, and it's awesome when I see people all over the world rep the podcast and rep the show. And if you do, please take a photo, tag me on social media, and I'll be sure to share it. So thank you in advance for the support. Really excited to share this week's guest with you guys. It's Dr. Shannon Curry. Dr. Shannon Curry is a clinical and forensic psychologist licensed in both California and Hawaii. She owns the Curry Psychology Group, a leading multi-specialty counseling center in Orange County, California, and has 15 years of experience conducting research, therapy, and psychological evaluations pertaining to trauma, violence, and relationships. You might be familiar with Dr. Curry via the Depp Heard trial that gained pretty much, you know, worldwide attention as she was an expert witness in that trial. Um, but this is an incredible conversation because we actually get into Dr. Curry's personal story. I had the wonderful opportunity to have lunch with her um, near her practice in Newport Beach, California. Had a great conversation. Dr. Curry is such a real, warm human being. Um, she shared very candidly, candidly with her own uh, bouts of depression and mental health um, stuff that she's came across in her life. And I think it's it's quite beautiful when a clinician of her stature shares something like that because it really makes people more personable, right? You see that someone that's helping others through this has too been through these struggles and is is going through these struggles we talk about depression at length so if you're if this is triggering for you i just want to give you a heads up we talk about suicidal ideation and suicidal intent and the differentiation differentiation between the two um, that's really important so we do discuss suicide within this episode um, we also discuss medication at the end of this episode and when that might be warranted and how we kind of have created this um, very hard bias against uh, medication and sometimes sometimes it is appropriate depending on the person right so we, we talk about a lot of things um, in this show. And I really wanted to say thank you to Dr. Curry for taking the time, spending it with me, taking an hour out of her day and her practice um, to come on board and to have a heart to heart, beautiful chat with me. Um, and it's just, it's been wonderful. It's been a treat to get to know her. So without further ado, hope you all love the new intro, just like I do. And um, 
I really hope you subscribe, tune into all the podcast shows if you're new here, listen to all the past ones. I'm sure you're going to find some value in there. And as always, head over to social media, give me a follow at that Barraza boy on Instagram, interact with me, engage with the content. It is very much appreciated. Let's go. Let's get into the conversation. Dr. Shannon Curry, thank you so much for joining me on Starve the Ego, Feed the Soul. I had the absolute pleasure of getting to know you over lunch uh, a couple weeks ago, and I can say that you are an incredible, humble, uh, talented human being. Um, as many of people have gotten to know you via the internet, via the the Depp Herd trial, because you were a um, uh, professional that, um, what was a what, what, what would you call it? I'm not familiar with the, with the trial, but an expert uh, witness, yeah. expert witness. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to have you on to talk about, well, well, so many things, but I really wanted to have you on to talk about your personal life story because it's an incredible one. And you've worked, um, as a clinician for a long time now, built your own practice in Orange County. So first of all, Shannon, thank you so much for joining me. Um, it's an honor to spend time with you. Thanks buddy. It's, it's really good to see you again. Absolutely. We we had some fish tacos and some good salsa um, a couple of weeks ago in Newport Beach where, where your where your practice is, your home is. And uh, I hadn't been up there since I was a really little kid. So it was uh, it was cool. to. That was your first time up since then? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I was five years old last time I've been in New, Newport Beach. Well, I will bribe you back up again because I was thinking, when can I come see you again? San Diego feels so far away. But yeah. if you'll come up again, I, I'll take care of everything. I'll take you somewhere real fancy. Absolutely. Let's do it. I'm, I'm always up for food. You got it. And the, our cameras are on right now too, right? Our I lovely so. guests can, can see me. Okay. I can see you. Yep. I, disclaimer, guys. I keep looking off in the distance because there is a fly torturing me right now this morning and I'm going to get it at some point. So don't be alarmed if I jump out of my seat. I'm going to get it. You know, my, my youngest dog, Seggy, he has a knack for catching flies. And I hear him like, you know, you, you have a dog, right? You have it's Maya. so impressive. Say, it really is impressive. It, yeah. it is. They're very talented. You see their creatures. athletic prowess in those mm-hmm. moments. Yep. She can look like such a floof. The and then she's hunter. a full wolf. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, well, I really wanted to start off today with you kind of giving everyone a background on how, how did you get into this profession? It's so, you know, so different for so many people that, that get their PsyD, get their doctorate or get their master's in, in therapy, right? To get mm-hmm. into helping people. And it often starts in childhood with who we are and how we're raised, right? Um, so would you yep. mind starting us off with how did you get to be, you know, this incredible provider and this business owner that you are today working Thanks, with people bye. in mental, emotional health? Well, it's a long meandering story. So I'm going to try to tell it the way my husband would. Okay. Because he always tells me to just land the plane. Mm. And and also, he knows me better than I know myself in a lot of ways. So whereas mm. if I tell the story, it literally will start with December 23rd, 1979, I was born. You know, right. he knows some of the key shaping moments that got me here. Uh, and I think there were a couple different things. Mainly, honestly, the boarding school I went to. Uh, I went to this really alternative boarding school called the Hyde School in Maine. And it's actually, it's silly that I'm even calling it really alternative because all it was is that the headmaster wanted a prep school that wasn't based on academic achievement at all costs, meaning that kids were being rewarded for cheating in some of these really high-end New England prep schools. And then he saw a lot of kids on scholarship who had truly stellar human character, moral character, and maybe they hadn't been given the same resources their entire life in terms of academics. So they were there on scholarship, and yet they had the maturity of some of our most extraordinary leaders, and they're getting failing grades, even though they're working so hard, they're putting so much effort in. And uh, so this is Joe Gauld, the headmaster of the Hyde School, had seen this when he had been a headmaster at previous other prep schools. And he started a school called the Hyde School based on the name of the family that had lived previously in this old mansion in Maine. Right. And the kind of tagline was character first. Hmm. So character above everything else, human development first. And, um, you know, I got sent to this school because I had been rebellious. I was only I was 14 when I started and I did not want to be there at all. 
I don't know if at any point I ever was excited to go back after summer or a break. It was really hard. Mm -hmm. It was really structured. We got up super early. There's room check. There's you're in the breakfast line. Uh, you have dorm jobs. You have campus jobs. A lot of cleaning. I was in the dish room a lot. I cleaned the bathrooms. Everybody has some part or some job on campus mm -hmm. to maintain kind of this like community. Right. And um, and it was run by the students, which I think is really an exceptional idea. Get rid of this cops and robbers idea of teachers against kids and enforcement and it being about bad behavior versus falling in line. This was more about um, some peers of mine who I really admired. I mean, it was essentially positive peer pressure. These were like, there were guys that were fully tatted up. These kids were gnarlier than I had ever been. And when you're 14 and you really just want to be like a, I don't, I don't want to say like a badass because I definitely wasn't, but trying to be, yeah. that's who you have respect for. Yeah. And there was a certain level of street smarts and cool and essentially real leadership quality. And I still believe this. I think that sometimes the rebellious kids are the conscience of their family. Mm. They're willing to stand up for something that feels wrong or they're willing, even if they're not necessarily directly standing up, if something feels off to them and they're reacting to it. Whereas there might be a different personality type that kind of falls in line or learns how to play the game. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in my case, I was just like, whatever happens, happens. And just call out it kind of like a rebel without a cause, just self-destruct and yell about it all the way down. And to a certain extent, that would still be my motto in life. Just I'm going to make this way harder than it needs to be. Right. But those types of kids also were incredibly loyal. I mean, the kids I hung out with when I was 14, like we would have laid down on railroad tracks for each other mm -hmm. and it's sort of its own family. And then when I got to this boarding school where some of those kids had actually had some positive experiences, there was a lot of wilderness program stuff involved and really pushing yourself beyond the limits of what you previously knew you were capable of. They were then kind of taking younger kids under their wing and challenging them, not just like be asking how you're doing, I think the phrase that got used a lot was like a kick in the ass and a bear hug. So I had these incredible interpersonal experiences. The idea was truth above everything else. When in doubt, tell the truth, still in doubt, bet on more truth. Yeah. And, um, and I was there for all five years of my high school, developmental high school period. So my life really got built around these really intense, meaningful relationships and growth experiences and challenges Mm. And uh, being able to look at myself in ways that were really uncomfortable and at times mm. feeling very, very alone and really um, criticized, but then even moving past that fear into a really empowered sense of self and, hey, I, actually, they might have some points here and yeah. I can do something about this. And then I realized how there's nothing better in life than growth. I mean, that's all, really at the center of all of it. Right. Um, I started pre-med and I was deeply unsatisfied. It felt sort of like um, a little bit mechanical. And after all of those years, and also when you're 18 and in college, all you have behind you is really like high school and elementary. So to me, most of my life had been these enriching relationships and I wanted that spirit back. Mm -hmm. um, and so then there was a little bit of a meandering path. I dropped out of Georgetown University where I was pre-med, lived on a broken down sailboat Eventually came home uh, to my parents' house, lived in my grandma's little basement room, um, waited tables forever, went to community college, met some phenomenal professors. And then once I finally was so sick of being broke, and again, this is sort of the rebel without a cause. I was like, I just didn't want to take this one math class. So I wasn't transferring in anywhere. I was just resisting, resisting. I finally got so sick of being broke that I uh, got all the requirements out of the way, transferred into UC Irvine and really started pushing, just giving it my all with psychology, not knowing what it would look like, right. knowing I didn't just want to be a therapist sitting in an office. My dad gave me the best advice I've ever gotten. He said, uh, baby, the, uh, he was like, stop worrying about some, um, stop worrying about some, finding some calling right away. 
It was like, you're 22 years old at this point. I was 22. It was like, pick anything. Pick mm-hmm. anything you enjoy learning about. There are always going to be hoops you have to jump through yep. that are difficult and aren't really, you know, you're not always going to be like doing impassioned research on multicultural psychology. You're going to have to take a statistics course. Pick something you like, work hard. There will be opportunities that arise that you can't even imagine right now mm-hmm. and you will make it your own. And he was 100% right. I love that because I think now we live in a culture where, you know, contentment is like this ever floating butterfly everyone's trying to catch, you know? Right. And, and to be real, it's just, it you never really fully get it, right? But there's a balance between like yeah. uh, having the motivation to, to grow, but also being content and, and practicing acceptance, right? One of the mm-hmm. beautiful things about the experience you just shared is when you're, you know, in this school and you're taken away from your family, there's this like great amount of like discomfort in the unknown in, in oh, yeah. having, like that family structure, but you have structure within that school, right? The sporting school. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what you think about, you know, now when I look at a lot of, I don't have children of my own, but I have a lot of friends now my age, a little bit older that, all, that have kids, right? They're young kids. And it seems like now it's it, like, we've, we've kind of swung the pendulum all the way on the other side <laughs> where it's like, whatever the kid wants, like, what, what can we do? Like, right. you need choices. You need all these choices, choices, choices. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you want to do? Like, where do you want to mm-hmm. go? And I feel like, there, there were missing a beat on some level here where we, we do need some structure. We absolutely need discipline. And, and it's interesting because when you were, when you were in it as a young person, you didn't really like it. And I didn't either. But now but I, when ex- I look- appreciated it too. I did appreciate it. Okay. But it was yeah. unpleasant. And that yes. is, yeah. And I think that's- you and I agree. That's the key is realizing that comfort isn't the answer. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, even, and also kids are capable of so much more than we give them credit for. I think we underestimate resiliency. Mm -hmm. We underestimate the driving force of personal growth and that you cannot have the beauty of peace and inner peace and self-knowledge without suffering. You can't. They go hand in hand. It's yin and yang. And if we're trying to exclude, I get the urge. I mean, I don't have children, so this is going to sound ridiculous, but I never want my dog to suffer ever. She bumped her face yesterday and it was cuddle central like all night long. But I get that. If I had a child, I can't even imagine how psycho I would be about trying to prevent their suffering. But I always say to parents, I'm like, the deepest love you can show is tolerating that incredible discomfort you have watching your child suffer. That's your gift to them is taking that on so that they can become fully developed, really resilient, enriched human beings. Absolutely. Let, let's talk about your own battle with mental health because I feel like this this goes hand in hand with like letting your child suffer and letting them mm-hmm. experience, right? Because, um, you know, I remember I think my first sort of awareness of depression or, or even like a feeling of depression when I was nine years old. I remember like sitting in my room alone. I have this consistent thing that kids come up in therapy about, you know, you know, this process, right? Envisioning like the memories mm-hmm. that come up. And I remember being, being nine years old and I've, talk, I've spoken about this on the show before, sitting in the corner of my room and uh-huh. like just just thinking a little bit about what it would be like to not exist, you know, yeah. and and for a nine year old, I didn't know this story about you. Yeah, well, I didn't we're, know we're still, this. We're still getting, but we can really, re- yeah, yeah. And and so you know, in that in that moment, you know, now having looked back, you know, I really uh, there was some stuff going on there with my mom and, and you know not feeling mm-hmm. safe and these other things, and you know, I think that it, it wasn't the the cause necessarily to experiencing different bouts of depression throughout my life, but it's a reference point for the inadequacies I felt that sort of uh, led m- more to sort of me being in a depressive episode. Right. And I, and when yeah. we had lunch, we talked, you know, deeply and you talked candidly about your own, you know, struggle with that. Would you mind, yeah. um, you know, kind of telling us about that? Well, I'm so touched that you have this memory because I, I had something similar from when I was eight I remember the age. I remember sitting under my dad's piano. My dad was a musician and I had this electronic keyboard I had gotten for Christmas. That was my prized possession. I kept playing this really sad demo song over and over sitting under my dad's piano keyboard on the floor, just just crying, which scared the shit out of my mom. I remember she was in the kitchen. We had this little, window and she could see through and there's her eight-year-old kid sobbing and just 
repetitively playing this demo song. Right. And, um, and my mom is a very balanced kind of steady woman, mm-hmm. but it's the curry side of things where we get the brain cooties a little. Uh-huh. And she was so worried. I remember her calling for my dad to come down and uh, he was probably depressed himself. So I think he kind of checked in and he was like, uh, anything going on? And I was like, I don't even remember the rest, but that moment, like you're saying, sitting in the corner of your room at age nine, I can remember it viscerally, just yeah. the sadness. And your memory is wondering what it'd be like not to exist. I was explaining to a friend the other night who struggles with anxiety, I always call anxiety and depression kind of sisters. Mm-hmm. And sometimes depression gets a little anxiety, but yeah. I always say depression's more my brand. Mm-hmm. and whereas anxiety is more other people's brand. I can't relate to that as much, but I've felt it before. But mm-hmm. mostly I know that depression feeling and how weird it is, even reflecting back on times in my life where I've had depressive episodes. And for the audience, a depressive episode is something that lasts two weeks or longer, and it's really a consistent depressed state. So it's not like you have the blues or you're in a bad mood or something bad has happened and you're just reacting to it there's a real flavor to it that you understand. I understand you just don't give a shit about anything anymore. And in fact, uh, life is so, I mean, the key feature of depression is hopelessness. Mm -hmm. Um, but you do, you have these suicidal thoughts and it's not suicidal thoughts sounds a lot more violent than what it is. Um, it's more of just a, you have to imagine that you have no energy you don't care about anything anymore. And it can be night or day when this comes on. I mean, you could be living your life. And then the next day, if that depression creeps in, you don't even remember what it was like to laugh. You can't even relate to it. You can't even conceptualize what you must have been feeling to laugh at a joke or to even have something witty to say. If I send a text when I'm depressed, they're so awkward. You're like, is this what normal people say in a sentence, is this how a sentence sounds? Mm-hmm. Your cognition slows down, you become forgetful, but mostly there is an immense sense of hopelessness, not caring about anything, not enjoying anything. Somebody could tell you, you just won the lottery and you're going to go tour the world and any, any dream you have, and you'd be like, I guess. Yeah. And so, but, and then there's also beyond that, not caring an intense sadness Mm -hmm. and sorrow. Uh, And so the feeling of just um, everything feels painful, too much, devastating, irritating, miserable. And you'll, and then you get this intrusive thought, like, what if I just don't wake up? And it feels so immensely comforting. It's the only comfort you really have is this moment of imagining not doing it anymore. Right. And so that's how I try to explain true suicidal ideation. And there's a difference. I want to really clarify this to the audience also. There is a huge difference between suicidal ideation and suicidal intent. Mm -hmm. One suicidal ideation is having thoughts about suicide. And it doesn't mean I have thoughts about opening my wrists. Just means even something as passive as it would be nice to not wake up tomorrow and just not have to do another day. And it doesn't mean you have any intent. You might have a million reasons why you you would never make that happen, but it's a thought and it is a very natural, very common symptom of depression. It's also not just a symptom of depression. It's a feature of a lot of different mental illnesses and mental disorders and when life gets tough, when people are grieving, if they've gone through a major loss, if they're going through a divorce, that is also a feature that can just pop in. And it doesn't mean you're mentally ill even. It doesn't mean that you're going to do it. I would... Is that the fly? Oh, no. I spilled water on myself. Sorry. <laughs> I was, I was actually... As you were, as you, I know we're laughing, but as you were talking about suicide ideation, I'm like, there is something on your shirt that's dark. And I thought it was the it's fly, but you were moving your hands around. And I'm like, it can't be, that fly would be like the most ballsy yeah. fly I've ever seen. Yeah. And 
audience, in case you missed it, I have been um, going round and round with this fly in here all morning. And I thought it was just, uh, you know, the spawn of Satan coming up while I was talking about this. But no, I just spilled on myself. The fly is probably gone. Anyhow, the point is, a lot of people have these types of thoughts in life. I wish we could talk about them more openly and normalize it because for people who don't know how common they are, they're actually terrified to even be having them. They think one plus one equals two. They're one step away from ending their lives. Not the case. But but it is interesting when I have those thoughts pop in, it's usually one of my first red flags that I'm depressed. And then I can kind of get meta about it and say, oh, that's why I felt so hopeless yesterday or that's why that was so irritating for me. Maybe I shouldn't take any of my thoughts seriously for a little bit and wait this out. That mental process you just ran us through that, that is exactly what I've kind of grown into as well too. And, and when I work with clients, it's one of the things I help them, you know, get a grasp of is, a grasp of is often, um, you know, I like how you say depressive episode because I noticed how you were saying that when we were talking in person and mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, that's exactly how to view it because you don't, you disembody, you don't attach to it, right? Instead yeah. of saying like, I'm depressed, right. like, it's like I'm having a depressive episode. Mm-hmm. So therefore you can separate yourself from the actual depression, same with anxiety, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so if there's a moment, I ask everyone, you know, someone comes into, you know, the session with me, and they'll be like, yeah, I'm, I'm really anxious person. I'm anxious all the time. Okay. Can you, can you remember the last time you weren't anxious? What were you doing? Right. How did you feel? Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. like, you know, two weeks ago. I'm like, okay. So by definition, if you're not anxious 24, seven, 365, you right. can't be an anxious person. You just have, right. it's a state, not a trait. Exactly. It's a state of being not a, not mm-hmm. a like consistent thing in your consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so with you, saying that you know it's it's like you can you can sort of be aware of what's triggering it right and i'm right. curious like you know what are some of the triggers you've experienced like because i know for me you know i know when i get overwhelmed or when mm-hmm. some of my closest relationships Whoa. you know something's not yeah. going on that that's what kind of sucks me into it because those wobbly. are things that really matter you know like financial yeah. stuff right uh health stuff like those things matter but like you said mm-hmm. if i you know i'm grieving something like that we need to normalize speaking about this because yeah. this really, you know, when I felt the most connected to human beings is when they, they too, like yourself has been like, yeah, I've, I've dealt with this too. Yes. And that's also why I went into psychology. I've never had that sort of connection. I felt my boarding school, I couldn't find it elsewhere in life until I pursued this path. So you just nailed it. That feeling connected. We love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I mean, so uh, yes, you can have the symptoms of depression without meeting all the criteria for a depressive episode. So for instance, grief has a lot of the symptoms of depression, but it might fluctuate more or it might actually, you might have a full depressive episode while you're grieving. So I think it's important to kind of separate the two. I think I'm very lucky that I am a psychologist, so I can kind of separate myself more naturally because I realize, oh shit, I'm ticking off all the boxes right now. Like I need to just wait. That, and then I also know about a two week duration. This isn't going to be forever, even though it feels that way. It helps me separate from the really hopeless thinking that's central to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but shoot, what was the question? I got distracted. The, the, the triggering, the triggering of it, you know, like the nature. Oh, of oh, yes. That's it. yeah. So, uh, and this is really such an interesting point. So you and I have these kind of genetic, we have this genetic vulnerability to depression. And so other people might go through a difficult experience and they might get the blues. They might get the blues. They might even have some acute traumatic stress. They might have some difficulty sleeping, but it won't meet full criteria for major depression. We call this major depressive episodes or, and the full criteria, I don't know, have them completely memorized, but I'm going to run off a couple. It's really uh, feeling sad most of the day, every day, persistent feeling of sadness. Hopelessness is at its core. Loss of motivation, loss of interest in previously enjoyed activities. I think you can probably agree that's like one of the most drastic things you realize is you wanted to get on your motorcycle yesterday and like drive around. And that alone was something to get you a little flutter. I love starting my car. I don't give a shit about how cool my car starts when I'm depressed. Mm-hmm. I just am like, it's just another thing that, you know, I'm beholden to in this. You're just miserable yep. and you can't, nothing can cheer you up. You and I will go there. If we get triggered, we're going to be vulnerable to it. 
-hmm. Somebody else might not. And that's why in psychology and psychiatry, we talk a lot about this biopsychosocial model. So what that means is that there's a genetic biological vulnerability. I know, like I said, depression runs strong in the curry genes. And then there's the psychosocial model. So do we have, how are our coping skills? And then what is our environment and our enrichment like too? And, you know, if you had trauma growing up, you're much more likely to express this gene and have it become kind of a lifelong issue. Mm. Um, And then also these triggering events are part of the social, the environmental. I, I take medication, so I don't have episodes that often. I consider them to be a breakthrough episode. Um, if it happens and it really takes a big hit, um, because even when my dog passed about two and a half years ago, who I loved more than anything, uh, and I was prepared, I mean, I really, I used to say like somebody just put me in a mental hospital when that happens, I grieved, but I didn't meet full criteria for depression. I mean, I was sad. I was the most heartbroken I've ever been. But it wasn't a full-blown clinical depression. There was a difference. I didn't have that um, complete lack of interest. I didn't have the suicidal ideation. It was just pure grief. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that was because I was so prepared. Yeah. So on the one hand, I had the social influence of his death and the loss, but I didn't slip into the depression because I also was using excellent coping skills and really prepared myself for it. If something catches me off guard... A betrayal, a betrayal, a massive loss that I wasn't expecting, something that makes me feel fearful about my livelihood mm-hmm. and brings up maybe some childhood trauma. Those are the things that can knock me off kilter. Yeah, absolutely. Like what you described. How about for of, you? I'm the, I'm the same way. You know, I think, yeah. um, I guess the question I was going to ask you and which I answer myself, I guess, to start is like, how do you build the resiliency to sort of prepare, right? And I think, mm-hmm. you know, the mental emotional preparedness is is a huge work. You know, we we talked about special forces a lot, right? When I was there, mm-hmm. because you know, I was trying to go uh, into the military after I retired from uh, professional sports and was going, you know, the, the SF route through the army before I had to get shoulder surgery. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is, like, you know, in um, that sort of level of of uh, the military, it's all about mental preparedness, right? It's like you, right. it's like we talk about intelligence, right? The military mm-hmm. calls it what well, we need intelligence, right? And if we think about this from a procedural level in how we operate emotionally is that, well, I want to think about these things before they happen to know how Mm -hmm. I'm going to respond so I can sort Mm -hmm. of, you know, have a gradient to that response to that reaction. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, I think about my oldest dog when she's going to pass because much like you, I am, she's been with me for nine years. Her birthday is your worst nightmare. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I think about Mm -hmm. like, you know, when she passes, how am I going to, you know, breathe into it? How am I going to embrace Mm -hmm. the grief and the loss, celebrate her life, but not let it suck me into a, I Mm -hmm. I miss her so much. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think about that with a lot of things in my life. Right. And I try Mm -hmm. to be, you know, um, as, as not, not like I don't care because that's, that's not who I am, but detached from the like strong attachment to this has to be the same thing throughout life because really impermanence mm-hmm. is the only constant, right? Like mm-hmm. it's constantly changing. Like you and I are aging. We won't be here mm-hmm. at some point in our lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that thought alone kind of allows that me to awareness. process. Yeah. It kind of allows me to process it's loss. The best you can do. Yeah. It's the best you can do. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately it's still going to suck and it's still going mm-hmm. to hurt. You're not it's going to suck. Away. But being aware of that, I, yeah, I, and that, and like, you know, you and I both know what depression feels like. It's just the not giving a shit about anything. Yeah. But the grief, I feel like I'm able to work with grief because I can suffer because of those experiences, right? You and your training understand that too. And in your athletic training prior to working with special forces, I, it when you've been pushed to a level that you, is really physically uncomfortable mm-hmm. and you have to push through all of those mental games, right. you know you're capable of things you never thought you were. And that's a really beautiful feeling. And I think that has really helped me to thrive despite depression. It's helped me to thrive despite, you know, a life being marked with some very heartbreaking losses. Uh, I mean, the reason I'm sitting here today, even though I was on the toilet the entire morning beforehand, I remember thinking, Nico will appreciate this because like, no way am I backing out of this podcast. What do I need to back out of the podcast? Cause I have to keep taking shits every five seconds. Like, no, I, 
Guys, I got a stomach bug. I apologize, the audience. We just lost half your audience. It's beautiful. If this inspires anybody, <laughs> I was like, no, I'm going to take an emodium. And what, what else are we going to be able to schedule? Yeah. I love you. I love talking to you. So we can tolerate discomfort, including tummy problems. Dr. Curry mixing in deep, profound conversations with having to shit yourself. So <laughs> I, I got to appreciate the, I mean, man, those doctor degrees. You guys. Um, <laughs> I, I I really appreciate honestly it's it's something beautiful about this conversation because I think for people that got to know you via the trial you know because obviously you you're you're following like increase exponentially so like oh they you know they they heard how you talk they heard how you an- right. analyze the situation and I'm just disappointing everybody well well no today. I I actually don't think that's the case at all I think that like this is the real you right when you, when you have to go on trial it's like you have to be you know this is the professional yeah. you right you I wish to- I could access professional Shannon all the time she's like I she just kind of takes over when when the stakes are high yeah but but this this shows people like therapists providers psychiatrists psychologists like the real human in you is what allows you (laughs) to help people really like like your education it gives you sort of the the background to draw upon on what's going on but your ability to relate to someone's pain and suffering is because you have suffered you know that that, I think that's why you're so good too there's uh, an insight you. from lived experience. You Absolutely. can feel it. Yeah, because you can't teach those things in a book, right? Your, your mm-hmm. clinical evidence, like, you know, all the research you've read and the, you know, the tests that you run when we're trying to, mm-hmm. you know, work with people, those things you've learned, right? Because we've studied collectively mm-hmm. as a human being, but your experiences and the things you've been through, arguably like that, that is the art you bring into the science, yeah. right? Which I find That's beauty beautifully in. said. Yeah. That is beautifully said. Thanks. Just, just ringing them out today, aren't um, <laughs> So, <laughs> so... So when we're talking about, um, you know, as we age and we're trying to, let's see, change our relationship with yeah. uh, depressive episodes or with anxious mm-hmm. episodes, you know, one of the things that's helped me is really connecting people like you, like building a sense of community with close mm-hmm. people in my life who have have had similar experiences, uh, can be vulnerable and authentic in, in front of me because I don't feel mm-hmm. alone. You know, yeah. and it doesn't have to be a romantic relationship all the time. It's just I need close people in my life. Whereas most yeah. of my younger life, I was just like, I can do this solo. Like I'll have friends, and I, mm-hmm. and I like my friends, but like really, like I didn't really talk about really deep shit mm-hmm. very much because mm-hmm. um, there was a sense of like oh, I felt naked, I felt vulnerable, I felt like um, what if they're going to use this to hurt me, right? What if they're going to take this? Yeah, especially you being a man. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really exceptional, and I love that you work with special forces because of that. Because there just isn't really, you're not, you're really not taught in the society how to do that. Right. Absolutely. And you do it in such a cool way. I think it's, I bet for the special forces guys, like, I mean, a lot of the psychologists in their world are women Mm -hmm. and, um, they need more men who they think are cool and they can relate to who show them like their strength here. This is how you can talk about what you're going through and, um, and not just in that, like, we're cool. Yeah, we're cool. Absolutely. I mean, that was one of the motivations, you know, um, to to enter, uh, not only because I, I did believe in the service and not that I agree with everything the military does, but I really think like, you know, to help people because I, I've, I trained a lot of retired SF guys that wanted to get into ultra running. And so they reached out mm-hmm. to me on social media through when I was coaching athletes. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, one of the things that attracts that, that, um, kind of caricature is suffering right is like the sense yeah. of like masochism and so these guys yeah. like they retire from the seals the green berets the raiders and they're just like well i just want to run 100 miles because i just want to punt myself mm-hmm. you know and and i always ask them like okay what's what's the goal here and most of them are like well right. i want to win and i'm like okay well here's the thing like you know if you're not 150 pounds you're probably not because these guys yeah. that are running professionally like they're tiny you know you could throw them off right. a cliff but you're probably not going to catch them up a mountain you know right and um I think like in, in part of that, like letting go of being the best, you, you kind of find yourself a little bit, right? And, and for a lot oh, of Oh yeah, guys, I'm the worst runner in the world, but it's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> Absolutely, because so you do it bad. for yourself. That's, that's the beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Same, just fun. That's where I'm at, you know, now in my life. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, you know, now having some, some guys that, and not, not all my, my clients that are military, you know, we're in SF, but my military clients, like, you know, a lot of them, 
suffer from similar things where, you know, once they leave and they reintegrate themselves back into society, it's a whole different world, right? Because that job is really unique. It's it's like nothing you've experienced, especially- And a real loss of purpose. You're tied into something with a real pulse and real meaning. Right. I think I felt this way actually after working on that trial last year is- um, I, I was being really intellectually challenged. I felt fully alive. I was really present in the moment. I'd engaged, you know, that flow, that flow in terms of um, stakes are high. I need to really do my best. And it was so fulfilling. And then it was just over. And these guys, I mean, I know it's always fascinating. I, one of the first things that came to my mind when I got home afterwards was some of what I've heard from my service members before where they talk about being bored and wanting to redeploy Mm -hmm. because the last year of my life with this case was really pretty miserable in terms of all of the work and the lack of sleep and um, finding out things the last minute I had to do. And just, it was incredibly chaotic and stressful. And yet um, that flow, there's nothing better Mm -hmm. than being a part of something bigger than yourself and feeling like you're firing on all cylinders, all of your strengths are being accessed. Uh, you just feel fully alive. alive, And I, and that's what these guys have talked to me about, you know, being deployed fucking blows. Yeah. It's for all this, you're, you're in danger. You're, it's not comfortable. You're away from people you love. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, there's humor and camaraderie and adventure and, um, Sometimes a sense of purpose, not so much actually. And I think that's a huge part of why we're seeing more PTSD and having and our guys and women are having a harder time coping when they come back with some of the sacrifices they've made. Yeah. But um, but they're a part of something, whether it's the camaraderie or something they believe is bigger and the seals especially. And then it's just gone. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think that it's, you know, we can relate that to just, you know, being, um, you know, a regular human in, in society. Uh, you know, there's a sense of identity crisis we all face at some point in our lives, right? Even if you're really successful in whatever you do, like at some point, most people, not everyone, most people get to a point where they question what they're doing, why they're doing it. Yeah. You know, um, are they a shell of themselves? Um, mm-hmm. Is this what they should be doing? Are they living the life that they should be living? Should, yeah. Right. And I'm using the word should yeah. because really it's a subjective thing and it's really dependent on, you know, the, the individual connecting with themselves. And that's that's mostly, I'd say, the process mm-hmm. of therapy is like really building self-knowledge. Who are you? Mm-hmm. Why are you mm-hmm. you? Right. Mm-hmm. Understanding the process of how you became you and learning how to change the things you want to change and accepting the things right. you can't. And also right. having gratitude for the things that that are beautiful within you mm-hmm. as an individual. Yeah. And often when we're doing that, I think those external questions about am I doing what I should be doing? Mm-hmm. Those start to fall away. Yes. I, and I but I think we start that really <sighs> difficult or unnecessary narrative. I mean, even with kids, when we start the college application process, when they're in ninth grade and setting them up to build their applications and their resumes for college so they get a good job, so they make money, so they're happy without any of those real talks. Like my dad and I had on a beach in Mexico after I had dropped out of college, I got to hand it to him on that one thing. They they never really forced me, except forcing me to go to boarding school. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were, I think because my dad maybe was similar, he allowed me to have my own journey without feeling like, uh, I don't know, without intervening. But those words were so important. Just pick anything, get rid of this notion that there's one path or one calling and definitely get rid of the idea that it's going to be your job. Now for me, uh, it ended up having very much to do with my job because I chose a job where it was all about growth and exploration and connection. So that was a safe bet for me. But uh, there were definitely, yeah, he was right. Hoops to jump through that didn't feel fulfilling. Didn't feel, and all of that's a privilege too. I mean, plenty of people are doing whatever they can just to put food on the table. So absolutely, there's absolutely. meaning in life beyond work. Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the things that, that we've shied away from, especially in Western culture, in Western culture is um, like being able to express who we are in, in our work environment. You know, I think mm-hmm. that that is kind of the beautiful thing about the sort of area you and I work in is like you can 
intertwine who you are and connect through your wounds and share about your own personal story. And that's one of the mm-hmm. beautiful things you brought up when we were having lunch the other day is that you were like, you know, it's something about therapy and psychology that, that needs to evolve. And it is, seems to be evolving, mm-hmm. right? Is that, you know, usually it's like the, the sort of archetypical, the blank slate. Yeah. right? The archetypical sort of like, um, masculine energy of like, well, I'm, I'm here to give you this wisdom, right? And that's kind of been the, the therapist's role is like, oh, right. So you feel that way, right? This is, you know, and now it seems to be at least the, the people I align with that I, that I really, um, have learned for myself is the ones that are like, I too have struggled with this. I too have done mm-hmm. this. I too have, mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, reached out or been in spite of anger or, or experienced deep depression or, or mm-hmm. did something I, I regret. Right. And these are the things and the skills that I've built to, you know, forgive myself, but also change these habits, right. To change mm-hmm. my life so I can appreciate mm-hmm. it and respect myself. Yeah. And I, it, that is not, it, I'm at a place now in my career where I started to make peace with being who I am as a psychologist, because I did feel like a black sheep for a while. And my personality is such that it is very difficult for me to do that sort of Western model of therapy where there's a hierarchy doctor patient relationship and you're very professional and very uh, sort of blank slate. And you ask the client questions, you never share anything about yourself. And even when I was studying, um, psychology in my doctorate program, I was doing a lot of research on multicultural psychology, specifically Latino psychology. And I had this incredible mentor, Miguel Gallardo, who was a president of the California Psych Association and the founder of the Latino Psychology Association. And he was really introducing me to um, some important work being done in the field to make the therapy model more culturally relevant uh, to all sorts of different cultures and human beings. And I remember one of the things that I thought was so hilarious thinking about this Western model compared to a lot of Latino cultures was if a client were to bring you a gift or something that they baked for you. And in the Western model, you would literally say, I'm sorry, I can't accept gifts, which isn't that fucking bananas. Mm-hmm. Some lovely person who is grateful for you and wants to thank you with a home cooked meal, you would reject it. I mean, that to me as Italian American even sounds insane, unbelievably rude. Um, And I remember reading this article Miguel gave me of talking about taking the enchilada and enjoying it in front of them Mm -hmm. while you start the session. And I I thank God that I had him in my life early on. I had another supervisor in my life early on, Duncan Wig, who really helped me to be more of myself and trust myself in therapy because I really felt, I mean, I swear I uh, make jokes that probably aren't that funny. Um, I can be self-deprecating. I really love my clients. I adore them. They're my buddies and I'm fully committed to them. I am fully committed to their well-being, but um, it just, it was really hard for a number of years before I got more comfortable being myself because the message I was certainly given in terms of ethics and um, your role was, it's all about the client. It's all about the client. You're the blank slate. And that was so incongruent with just my personality. I always felt like I was doing something wrong. Yeah, it's interesting because many clients that reach out to me to work with me, they, they specifically say like, you know, they've been in therapy, a, a handful of them for years mm-hmm. and they've just reached a plateau, you know, and they just feel mm-hmm. like, you know, they're looking for someone that really is going to connect with them on on their experience, you know, and that's mm-hmm. why they, and so it's, it's interesting because I feel like people are really starting to align with, they want someone like yourself that, you know, can, you know, really just be themselves in the room, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not just like this, like, you know, clean slate yeah. clinician, right? Um, you mentioned God when you were, when you were speaking and I, I figured I'd just ask this question because I talk about spirituality um, on the show quite a bit with a lot of the guests. Do you think that spirituality has played a role in your management of, of depression and, and depressive episodes at all? You know, it's interesting. Spirituality is, I mean, I do believe in God. Um, I had an experience when I was 13 and really in a desperate situation and dealing with some trauma that I swore to God I would never forget. I was not raised religious actually at all. Um, so I sort of <laughs> like stumbled along my own path. Um, you know, depression in and of itself, I don't feel like 
my spirituality helps as much with because when I think of depression, I think of just almost like a gray, empty room. And those are probably the times where I feel least tapped in. I think depression by nature, it's like, I'm so stripped down. It would be hard for me to even feel that connection of the higher power. And that's truly the neurology of it. If you look at a depressed brain, there is very little activity. I mean, you put it next to a non-depressed brain and you see all this light, all this electrical activity. The depressed brain is dark. It's just dark. So to be completely honest, my relationship with God, my belief in God, my belief in a higher power and most an energy and, and a real kind of love connection that serves me more in probably developing coping resources outside of the depression. Um, and, uh, and then those coping resources are like rope memory when the depression happens. Mm -hmm. But if I'm completely honest, I don't feel connected to anything when I'm depressed and that's part of the problem. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think that is, no, that's a beautiful answer. I appreciate your honesty too. And I, I can reiterate that because I've, you know, reconnected with, with the spiritual practice in the past couple of years. And I was pretty agnostic and atheist for most of my twenties um, mm-hmm. and a good half of my teen years. And I think that, you know, when you're in it, it might not be helpful, but I think that when it, where it's helped me is separating myself from attaching so much to this existential dread mm-hmm. where when I feel, when, I, when I'm sure. overwhelmed or when I'm experiencing something like that, that I feel like I'm slipping in, I can kind of, you know, take myself out of that for a little bit and kind mm-hmm. of put a little bit in my spiritual practice, which kind of disembodies the experience mm-hmm. of attaching to the that depression. definitely is with me. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that's probably something I would qualify as one of my coping mechanism yeah. mechanisms is that non-attachment and, right. and sort of almost at this point, like an entrenched belief I have that my experience is not me, mm-hmm. right? So that I'm kind of the observer. Right. So it's habitual. Now, even when I'm depressed and miserable and think everything sucks, mm-hmm. I still kind of just ride it out. I don't cling to it. I don't attach to it. I do not try to draw any meaning from it. Right. We we talked a, a bit about um, your husband and his relationship with you throughout these throughout this mm-hmm. experience, right? With certain uh, depressive episodes, and I think that's that's one thing that a lot of people ask me, especially in, in Instagram story questions, is you know if my partner or friend or someone I love is experiencing a depressive episode, right? Major depressive episode. What do I do? Mm-hmm. Like, how can mm-hmm. I help them? You know, mm-hmm. how can I you know make them feel better? Right? Mm-hmm. Do you have any do you have any advice for that? Yeah, I mean, I, Ty's real gift because he has he suffered really young. He lost his brother when he was fourteen, and he was raised by a single mom. And she's just this incredibly strong woman who was beautifully transparent with him through that experience, and they would talk about it openly. So I feel like he has almost like this expertise in pain. And what you're capable of doing for someone when they're in pain and what you're not. And that's really the expertise. Um, There's an urge, of course, when we see anybody we love suffering to make it better. And depression is one of the perfect examples of when you can't because it is going to run its course. Whether you're on meds or not, essentially the research has shown it will eventually improve if it's a true depressive episode. And... um, what Ty does for me, so I'll speak for myself personally, is he's just um, really gentle with me when it happens. And he recognizes, again, it doesn't happen that often because I do take meds and it, and it is different than grief. Um, recently, I had a depressive episode this summer after um, I went through a really serious betrayal um, and I was feeling it, it caught me off guard. And so this was probably one of the hardest things I've been through in years. Yeah. And sure enough, the depression crept in and he said he'd only seen me. We've been together seven years. He said he'd only seen me like that one other time where I was wiped out. I mean, it took me out at the knees and um, he didn't add any layers of it, any layers to it. So he didn't ask me a ton of questions. He didn't uh, try to cheer me up. He didn't try to get me out of the house. He essentially just almost downshifted with me to meet me where I was and made sure I had a blanket on me when I was on the couch and not really talking, um, cooked me meals that I picked at and gave me water and 
checked on me. It just, it was very loving. Like you're sick. Yeah. You're sick. And, uh, I hate being depressed because he's doing all these lovely things. And I'm not even really thinking to thank him. I'm just, you're so miserable, right. just miserable, but it lifted. And yeah, he was just a, a loving presence. Yeah. And, and I think all the greatest gift he gave me was managing his own worry about me mm-hmm. because um, there's nothing, like I said there, I couldn't even really appreciate all the kindness he was showing me, let alone, help him feel better. If he was starting to get stressed about it or worried about me, I would not, I could offer nothing. Right. Uh, Capacity is very limited. Yeah. So he did his own coping. He probably talked to other, you know, somebody trusted for support and um, just met me where I was. It was beautiful. That is, that's incredibly special. Um, With, uh, when you talk about medication, right? One of the things in our culture is uh, it's almost like, again, the pendulum swung all the way on the other side, whereas in the 90s, uh, early and middle 2000s, prescribing antidepressants very, very much peaked, right? Peaking, right. peaking, peaking, even in the early like 2010s. This new idea that you could take a pill, right. Prozac Nation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Solve all your problems, you know, mm-hmm. the, the interpersonal work or the, or the integration. So now, um, you know, it seems like people are like, well, I'll go have a uh, plant medicine experience or, you know, mm-hmm. which, which I, you know, there's a lot of research coming out of that or... Mm-hmm. I'll do all these other things. And, and although I think that those are beautiful ways and we have to still do a lot of interpersonal work, regardless if we're on mm-hmm. medication or not, there are certain situations that warrant medication, right? We, we've studied these things. We have these things, you know, um, and even, even in clinical mental health counseling, like, you know, a lot of times in your pharmacokinetics class, your pharmacology class, they will specifically tell you, make sure to check out your biases for, you know, pres- prescribing or not prescribing. 100%. Right. Because yeah. we even as counselors. Because a lot of the meds are really safe and really, really clean. Absolutely. So can you talk about this a little bit? Because I haven't really talked about um, this much on the show, but, you know, what, when do you think it is warranted? You know, what, when, yeah. when should people, you know, try it? Because whether you're going to a primary care a physician or a psychiatrist, you know, I think a lot of people are unsure about, right. you know, when is the appropriate time? You know, that God, there is no one size fits all answer for that. And, uh, but I wish, I mean, in my, this is anecdotal in my own practice. What I find is that I have a harder time in getting people to, um, consider medications when in my professional opinion, I feel as though, it is certainly the time. It is beyond the time. Um, and they're just not, they are white knuckling it through life. And look, this is also a really interesting topic because as somebody who is very spiritual, I wrestle with this. My, there have been times, not so much anymore, but I'm actually going to tell a story to illustrate this. So like I said, anxiety is not really my brand. Depression's my brand. Mm-hmm. But I have had anxiety because these are all sort of, it's the same little group of neurotransmitters. And sometimes it's more about, you know, GABA, sometimes serotonin's the issue, norepinephrine. So I always tell my clients, if you're an anxious person, don't be surprised if one day you find yourself on the couch and can't figure out what's going on and you get a little depressed. So one day I, uh, and I have a prescription for Xanax for anxiety. I hardly ever need it, but I also appreciate medication where medication is due, especially Xanax. And here's why. If you are somebody who's not abusing substances and you are having true anxiety disorder or panic disorder, where you are having this physiological hyperarousal, and it's also affecting your ability to think rationally, and you are starting to avoid going certain places because you're afraid that For instance, with panic disorder, you're afraid that you're going to have another panic attack if you go here. You start making all of these associations and links and almost getting superstitious to a point where your life is becoming restricted or you're not driving or you're not going over bridges because you started getting anxiety over the bridge. And again, we're not talking about worry. We're talking about true mental illness, anxiety, uh, cortisol shooting up, your heart fluttering, feelings of constriction in your chest, hyperventilation. In some very severe uh, cases with my clients, panic disorder, they will actually get muscle cramps that scare the shit out of them because it's a little known symptom most people don't know about, but actually a very common one with a high, a more severe panic disorder 
and you can get shooting pains, intense chest pain. You have every reason to believe you're dying. Okay. Um, and, but the problem really becomes the more that these happen without you being aware of what the symptoms are, without you learning how to manage these symptoms, the more likely they are to continue to even get heightened and interfere very substantially in your life. In comes a medication like Xanax. It is essentially intended to just break that cycle. So I always think of it like a break glass in case of emergency. If you're starting to feel like you're thinking, you're getting that spinning, that hyperventilation, your thinking is not to be taken seriously. And if you're having a really hard time getting it under control, which is the nature of these diagnoses, you take the Xanax, suddenly everything becomes very clear. It's not an emergency. You're not dying of a heart attack. And what's really beautiful about that is then the next time the symptoms start at that low level, you're less likely to bite the hook. You remember that last time this happened, you thought you were going to die. You thought you might even drive your car off a bridge. You took the Xanax and you realized none of that was true. So it breaks a, a cycle very importantly. And I haven't, but here's why we don't do it. A, that fearful thinking is irrational when you're having anxiety. You're not thinking very rationally. And B, when we're putting a lot of um, pressure on ourselves to be well and heal and use spiritual, natural means, um, sometimes it can feel like we haven't tried enough yet. But that goes on forever and ever. So one day I was seeing clients and I was getting those flutters and I, and I was getting the flutters. I was feeling like I was a little bit, uh, like my chest wasn't fully expanding. There was a lot of pressure. And I also felt like I wasn't fully present in some of my sessions. So I needed to do something about it. I was aware of that. So I did all my deep breathing stuff. Mm -hmm. Didn't help at all. In fact, I probably wasn't doing it right because I was anxious I was, you need to really hold your breath when you're anxious. Otherwise you can start taking in too much O2 and get a little bit dizzier and speed it up. So I did the deep breathing. Didn't work. Was thinking like, okay, I'm going to listen to Tara Brock, a little meditation, a little guided meditation. I couldn't even hear the words she was saying. I was so panicked and also rushing to do a million other things. By the end of the day, I had had like an alpha stim, which is this um, Mm -hmm. sort of electro wave thing that the military uses and these clipped to my ears. I had done six full hours of alpha stim, no avail. I was my best friend from uh, my doctoral program. Dr. Francesca Parker works with me and she is one who understands all this stuff personally, as well as professionally. And she's a genius. And she comes in, I was like hooked up to my machines. I mean, I've got Tara Brock. I have like five minutes before my next appointment. She's like, what's going on in here? It's like, I don't, I've had anxiety all day. I've tried everything and I can't get rid of it. She's like, try to Xanax. <laughs> and it was one of those eye-opening moments where I was like, no, because I don't deserve it. I don't know. I don't feel like I've gone deep enough spiritually today to just, des- we think of it like a crutch and we need to get rid of that stigma because anxious people are the most likely to think everything is potentially dangerous, harmful, a crutch, addictive. And yet they're the ones who need it the most. I could have cut through all that bullshit at 9 a.m. with a single Xanax. Absolutely. Okay. That makes sense. And I I like how you explain that because, you know, it's really hard to paint a broad brush with, you know, prescribing things Mm -hmm. to people. But I do think that we need to be aware of our biases as culture, as our culture progresses. Right. And it seems like we, the pendulum has re-swung. It's like, okay, pharmaceuticals are now the devil. And although, you know, they, they've done some, some pain and some great deal of, of, you know, not healthy things to people there, they serve a purpose. And there are some that specifically can work for certain people and really provide like an easier way. Yeah. I mean, and and I probably use the worst example ever because Xanax is potentially habit forming and a benzo, but those of you with anxiety who are listening, I know that that is scaring the shit out of you right now. And I hope that it doesn't because I always say to my anxious clients, I'm like, you are the least likely person to ever abuse this because right. everything is potentially dangerous. Right. But there's something like Lexapro. That's what I take. That is so clean. And the, when I was studying psychopharmacology, I always imagined it like the little 
you know, the little Canadian baby brother in South Park. Mm-hmm. That's how I always imagine Lexapro. Like, yep. excuse me, can I, like, receptor, can I just come, like, rest on you? Like, I won't intrude. And it just, it's so specific to those serotonin receptors. It doesn't mess with a lot of other receptors in your body tissue. It's got a short half-life. It just, you can take it for life without needing to worry. And I also think it's hilarious how we demonize something like Lexapro that is really nature and science at its finest, finding a chemical compound that is so clean, that is so targeted. Um, and yet, you know, we party or we drink a lot or we smoke cigarettes or, you know, I, it's, this is something that can have so much benefit if you struggle with depression, change your entire life. Absolutely. Or anxiety, especially. And, Absolutely. um, yet we put this unnecessary emphasis on it not being natural. I think that's a real dangerous stigma yeah. is natural versus unnatural. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Dr. Curry, uh, it's always a pleasure to spend time with you. I, I, really I can't wait to see you again soon. Legitimately. I, I want to, I want to ride the bike back up and, and have another, that would be show. awesome. And great. Challenge. We'll get it on the books after this. Please, let's do that. Okay. Um, for people that that want to uh, find out more about you, connect with you, whether it be on social media or potentially check out your practice, um, you, you, I don't know. It's probably really hard to see you, but there's plenty of people that work for you mm-hmm. under your practice. Mm-hmm. Can you can you give us that those plugs? Yeah. Please? So I have an incredible team working with me. It's we're the Curry Psychology Group. We're in Newport Beach. We um, can practice remotely as long as it's in with within California or Hawaii, where we're licensed. Um, and then we can also do some life coaching across state lines, not actual clinical therapy, but life coaching. Um, we specialize in the Gottman method of couples counseling, and we specialize in working outside of that with all age groups. So kids, teens, adults, um, and families. I have primarily psychologists within the practice. So those are doctoral level clinicians. Most of us have military training, VA experience where you're going to get some of the best training around. Um, and I just love my group. Great team. They're really cool people. All of them have life experience and, um, are very relatable as well as very, very sharp. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram at Curry Psych Group, which I really got into this summer. I previously, um, let it just be kind of this formal, here's a tip. And I really embraced that this summer. It's been fun for me to share a little bit more of myself. Beautiful. I'll throw the links to, all of that in the show notes, everybody. Okay. So go and go and check her out and connect. Uh, Shannon, thank you so much for spending time. Thanks, with me. buddy. You're so wonderful. Can't Great wait to hang time. out again soon. Absolutely. Bye, guys. I wish people could realize all their dreams and wealth and fame, and so that they could see that it's not where you're going to find your sense of completion. Everything you gain in life will rot and fall apart, and all that will be left of you what was in your heart.